In the midst of our series on where the Bible came from, we've talked about the canon of the Old Testament and its transmission. We've talked about the transmission of the New Testament and how its canon came to be formulated. Tonight, we're focusing on the inspiration of Scripture. But we're just beginning. Tonight, I want to introduce some terms and throw some ideas up because what I've realized over the last couple of weeks, aside from the fact that nobody likes to talk about the Bible, what I've also realized is that it's hard to have a discussion the way we normally do in an interactive forum because so much of the information is fresh and new. Most of us have never really even thought about it. We're just taking in some of it, so it tends to silence everyone. So tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you what some people think about inspiration, and maybe next week we'll dialogue about it more. In fact, what I'm planning on doing next week is having Jeremy and I talk about it and take different positions, and then you can dive in as well. But if you pay attention tonight, you might be able to gain some of the terminology, and that way you can think about it this week and join us next week and get into the discussion. So that's kind of what we're doing. And then we've still got a couple topics ahead of us, inerrancy and infallibility, and maybe just how the different translations work. We've added two more books to the series if you're kind of following along, now that we're moving into inspiration. So a couple more books you can look at. We already have Origin of the Bible and the Canon of Scripture, but... There is Biblical Inspiration by I. Howard Marshall that I've been going through. If you want to follow along on the topic of inspiration, I found it pretty helpful. It's not a very long book. It kind of brings in a lot of different perspectives, though. And then a classic on inspiration is The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture by Rene Posh. And that's kind of one that has been around for a while, actually written in the late 60s. I have a couple others, but I think those are sufficient for you. If you want to jump in and hear about some of these things over the next couple of weeks, you can check out those books. So here's what you asked. On the cards we started with, these were your questions. What does God inspired mean and who came up with the idea and what is that based on? What does it mean for a writer to be inspired by the Holy Spirit? Where does inspiration occur? Is it before the writing, during the writing? How do we make sense of the fact that it was inspired by God yet written by humans? In some books by more than one author. How do we grapple with God's sovereignty when we consider human authorship? and human fallibility, and how much of the Bible can be attributed to culture as far as issues related to gender. Those are all things you wanted to ask. I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks you might get some answers out of what we discuss. But I just want to remind you why this topic's even important, because apparently you want to know about these things that we're going to be talking about. So let's kind of start with just a brief summary. Where does the doctrine of inspiration even come from? We've looked at this verse a number of times. We keep coming back to this verse, so it's often cited. Let's look at it one more time. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are focusing on all Scripture is God-breathed. That's what our focus is in inspiration. Here are some other versions of from the NASB, they translated, all scripture is inspired by God. NRSV, all scripture is inspired by God. The King James Version, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Just to show you that the concept of inspiration, God breathed, are one and the same. That's how we've translated God breathed. The NIV retains the original wording, and that comes from the Greek and the actual words that we translate as all scripture is inspired by God, 
or all scripture is God-breathed, is from the Greek, pasagraphe, which means all writings, but they knew which writings they were talking about. They were talking about the scripture writings, are theopnostus. Meaning, if you put them together, we all know the theo is God. Pneuma comes to us as breath, literally, but it's often translated also as the spirit. So when you put them together, it's really God-breathed. It's describing an action. It's God-breathed out or God-out-breathed. So all scripture, when the NIV translated it, all scripture is God-breathed. They're just taking the two parts of the word and just translating them into English and leaving them as is. Now, Brittany, a number of weeks ago, pointed out that this word doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, so we can't really understand its true meaning. And that's an argument that's often made. Like, how do we understand this word if we can't find it anywhere else? But really, this isn't a strange word. It's just two pieces of two words just put together to create an adjective or something that we could understand. Like, it's describing Scripture as God breathed. Now, of course, that's going to have a lot of implications that we need to understand. But if you just translate it literally as all scripture is God breathed, you can't go wrong because that's actually what it says. We've taken the step in many of the other versions to say, yes, that's the doctrine of inspiration. It's inspired by God. Does it rest entirely on this verse? Well, this is the verse that almost every church cites. There's a second verse that I think is helpful to us. Looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. And notice that the writer is in the middle of an argument about the authorities that he is talking about. In a defense of those things, he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came down from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the part that we pay most attention to in this topic is that last part. The concept of men being carried along by the Holy Spirit in what they spoke. I can't take too much of that because he is talking about two distinct types of revelation there. and We're going to get to them in a minute. But just so I can highlight them for you really quickly, here he's talking about a revelation of hearing God's voice audibly. And of course, there's another revelation in there, which is seeing the majesty of God's son in front of them, God revealing himself through Jesus. So there he's talking about that kind of revelation. But he's also talking about a different kind of revelation, one that comes from the prophets, and saying that no prophet had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
That carried along also implies in the original language a kind of being pushed along by the wind. It's the same kind of way you'd be carried along if your sail filled up and carried you along. So this concept comes up in a number of places, but really, these are the two strongest ones we have. Expressly. Implicitly, we see it throughout Scripture in many other places, and I might comment on a couple of them tonight. So, let me talk about what inspiration has come to be in terms of a theological statement, so that we're clear on what we're talking about. First, inspiration relates to God's action and interaction with the authors as they came to write Scripture. It relates to the original manuscript. Now, we haven't even established that something is inspired yet, but what I'm trying to point out is, if anything was inspired, what it leads us to is point number two, inspiration's not associated with transmission and translation or even interpretation. It relates to the original. So, for example, if you say, well, we've seen that in the past couple weeks that even in transmission, people have added things or deleted things or we're not sure if that belongs in there or not, that is not an issue of inspiration. And even if we don't understand it correctly, that's still not an issue of inspiration. Third point, illumination is different from inspiration. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit in the present, interacting with us today as we come back to the scriptures to help us as we understand it and interpret it and are enlightened by it. So a classic way to say it might be that the Holy Spirit inspires scripture in its original writing and today illuminates it for us so that we can see the same work of the Spirit come alive now for us. The fourth concept is revelation. And you just saw in that passage that I had from 2 Peter, different kinds of revelation. People usually talk about revelation in terms of general revelation or special revelation, but what is revelation? It's God revealing himself to humanity. It's how does God reveal himself to us? How has he made himself known? So people talk about general revelation, I've heard Morgan allude to it in the past, and we've alluded to it in several places. For example, God revealing himself in creation or in history. That's made known to all people. But it's general. It doesn't really give specifics. Special revelation might be examples like the ones we saw. God revealing himself to the prophets. God revealing himself in the incarnation. Or, as we're going to talk about tonight, God revealing himself in Scripture. So, how do we think about inspiration? I think I would build my case this way. Clearly, some things in Scripture reflect God's words. There are some places in Scripture where it says that a prophet heard from God or God said, go tell my people these things. So, Scripture at least contains what people believe to be God's words. Other times, things in Scripture are attributed to God. And I think this is a very important point. Because if you took all of the places where God said something, we have God's actual quoted words, we wouldn't have very many pages of the Bible compared to all the other things that are contained in there. So in other places, words of Scripture are attributed to God. In fact, there's some places where words originally spoken by somebody else are attributed as God's words. And that's one of the places where I said implicitly in several places we have this idea that 
the words of Scripture are God's words implicitly. I've cited like Acts 4.25, Acts 28.25, Matthew 19.4, Hebrews 3.7, Acts 13.34. If you write some of those down or look at them, you'll see that there's people who are attributing things that were either said by somebody else or just things in Scripture as spoken by God, impliedly saying that God speaks through Scripture or God speaks even through what other people have said that have been put down in Scripture. But that still doesn't take us there. That's just another few instances. So we have places where God clearly, his words are quoted. We have places where people attribute other things to him. What about narrative descriptions? Are those inspired? What about historical facts that are contained in Scripture? Did God mean to inspire the authors about those? What about the author's own words? Sometimes we even have opinions and questions that are asked by the author. Sometimes we even have recorded the words of other people. Sometimes we have the words of evil people that are recorded. Are those meant to be taken and how are they meant to be taken? So if you think that we should quantify and say what's inspired is what God actually said, you'd be at the very top of the list. You could add and say, well, but you can also think there's other places people attribute certain things to God. Okay, what about everything else? And here's the question that next week, so you can think about now, Jeremy and I will take on. Is the Bible the word of God? Or does it just contain the word of God? Anyone want to give us their opinion now? Yeah. What's the difference? Well, the first one, to say that the Bible is the Word of God means that God used human authors to create an end product where every word actually is as if it had been spoken by him. The second one just says, no, somewhere in this book are contained the words of God or just part of the Word of God. Yeah. I would say the second one. The second one. Why? I think part of like in different Gospels where there's slightly different accounts of the same event. And I guess in the same way that if like a child asks like where did babies come from, like you could say like, oh, it comes from mommy's tummy. Or you could like give the long drawn out explanation. And both are like right in their own in their own way. But one is just more detailed than the other and it's kind of two ways of explaining the same thing. Or like multiple artist pictures of the same thing are all gonna look different. So the thing that the picture is being painted of, I think, is truth, but there's just slightly different interpretations all around. Okay. Anyone else? Let me just give you something to consider thinking through this. We spent a long time going through a book like Matthew. We also spent some time talking about, well, what does this word mean? What does the author intend? And does that have any interplay with whether the Bible is the Word of God or just containing the Word of God? Because in some way you'd say, we get bent out of shape a lot about authorship and context and what it meant at the time and the place that it was. And if it really just contains the Word of God, but it isn't the Word of God, why are we tripped up over every single word in it? And theologians spend a lot of time debating what the meaning of a word is or how it affects it. If it just contains it, maybe it's not as important. Jeremy. 
Yeah, I think that's too much of a simplification. The, the concern for, for someone like me is that when we say that the Bible is special in some type of revelatory sense, then I think it runs the danger of becoming idolatrous and dogmatic. And I don't think that that's really the point of what's contained within the text. The point of the Gospels and the point of God's revelation or self-revelation is not let's write a book that we can carry around and say, this is it, you know, uh, it has everything in it that you could possibly need for life, because it doesn't. It doesn't have everything you could possibly need to answer every question in life. Um, I don't think it does. And I think that the danger in saying it does is then you have to do some really fancy theological footwork to say, oh yes, it talks about this modern issue here by way of this and this and this. And as soon as you start getting into language and context and cultural, the cultural setting and the cultural worldview, that changes a lot of that. And I think we should be okay with the ambiguity. I think that we should be okay with the fact that that uh, these authors and these writers lived in a specific worldview and had a certain way of thinking and that they may not have any special claim as to having perfect knowledge or, or some kind of perfectly divinely inspired knowledge. You heard it here. It's going to be a smackdown next week. We'll take it on. It's a little preview of where we're going. I think it'll be good and cordial, of course. Let me show you some views on inspiration and then we're going to stop. I'm not going to do too much. I just want you guys to get introduced to the subject. So here's some views on inspiration from across the spectrum. One view of inspiration is that the entire Bible is the product of prophetic inspiration. Another way to look at prophetic inspiration is it was dictated. Now, this view gets a lot of kind of short shrift treatment. I actually think the view is not that bad. We know that at times in Scripture, God did dictate. He said, hey, you, prophet, go tell them this. We've seen that. It's not like that would be foreign to God to do. And the second reason I think this gets some bad treatment, I think it gets unfair treatment, is because I think a lot of Christians secretly think that it's closer to this than it might be. I think maybe we know better than to say that the Bible was dictated, but in our own real views we think, yeah, but it was kind of close to that probably. So that's one view. Most people reject it, but I think, like I said, even though most people reject it, we kind of secretly are attracted to it. Because it would sure explain a lot of things, like how those people knew what Jesus was praying about when he was all alone and everybody else was asleep. Like there's stories like that where you think, how did they know that? And it would be easier for us to believe that God just whispered it to the author and he goes, oh, that's good stuff. <laughs> wrote it down. That's one view. At the other end of the spectrum, way at the other side, is this view. The Bible is simply the work of men and women who had remarkable insight and in the ability to express themselves very eloquently. So God is kind of uninvolved at this other extreme. On one side, he's actually actively dictating and just using the authors as instruments of his dictation. At the other view, God is really uninvolved and people with insight, spiritual insight, were able to glean things and to express them in ways that have survived and mean something to us. Clearly, those are two extremes. 
Let me fill in some in between. One close to the extreme of it being purely an act of human agency is inspiration should be understood as encounters with the divine serving to inspire the biblical writers, kind of the way that you see a beautiful scene and it inspires you to go write something, like a beautiful song or a poem. So inspiration should be understood that way, that really once you encounter the divine in some way, that inspires you or spurs you on to be able to write about it or to express truths about it. Again, the focus here is mostly on human agency, but at least there's an encounter with the divine that serves as the inspiration. My criticism of this, quite frankly, is just it relies too much on an English view of inspiration. Like, I don't think that this has anything to do with theopnostus or the Greek God-breathed idea of inspiration. This just seems to rely on a dictionary definition, but... That's a view that at least gives a little bit more added to human agency. Here's another one. Close to it. The authors of the Bible were witnesses to God's revelation and were moved by such experiences to write about them in unique and profound ways. Now notice this sounds like the one I just talked about. It sounds like they were just inspired by them, but this is a little different. The key words here is they were witnesses to God's revelation. In other words... The Bible is not God's revelation. God was revealing himself in other ways, maybe through miracles, maybe through his action with the Israelites, maybe in prophecy, any of the other ways that God chose to reveal himself. The gospel writers would have been witnesses to the revelation of Jesus as the incarnation of God. And they were moved by that, and they wrote about it in unique and profound ways. That's another view of inspiration. What it's denying is that the words themselves are God's revelation. Question? Could it be more than one, or is that like completely paradoxical? Like, could it be some parts it was like people witnessed things and recorded it historically, and like some parts God actually spoke out and said, "Write this down," or like, or does it have to be one of these views? Can they coexist? I'm not taking any of them off the table right now, but I will tell you that in the end, when you put them next to each other, there's a couple that could survive together but they actually kind of contradict each other a little bit, and that's why they develop as independent views. And just to be fair, in between all these six that I'm putting up, there are shades of them. I mean, it's not like there's just six people out there who've talked about this in 2,000 years. In fact, just in the 20th century, there's probably been a proliferation of all these little sub-views underneath each of these as you had this development of people who were fiercely defending inspiration, other people who were like completely opposed to the idea, and all the kind of theological wrestling that that produced. I mean, I don't know, I was counting like different views. It would not be unreasonable to say there were 20 different views expressed by different people just during the 20th century that were substantial enough that people were actually reading them and considering them. So I'm kind of putting up the main points. But in the end, I think you're going to have to pick one only because they are inconsistent with one another. Maybe not in the one sentence I summarized them in, but as you get into them, you know, like you could say, well, this one sounds a little bit like this one, but the difference is this one really is based on a revelation. You know, this is just kind of seeking some sort of encounter. Here's another one. The Bible is no different than any other books which were written. Rather, 
The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to make a particular form of divine revelation by speaking through it to particular individuals or communities. Nothing special about the Bible, but the use of it is special. The Holy Spirit can use this book to speak to people today. This view is popularized in the 20th century by Karl Barth. He held this view. And this was a view that many people followed and other people attacked. But the idea here is the way it came to be is not special. We focus too much effort on the way that it was put together. That's not our focus. The focus is more on how the Holy Spirit uses it. And this is where it's helpful to understand the difference between inspiration and illumination. One could fairly say that Karl Barth was very strong on illumination. He believes that the Holy Spirit is active today in Scripture, revealing things to us, whether as individuals or communities. But he seems to have, even though he's writing it as a theory of inspiration, he seems to have a much lower view of inspiration in the composition. And that's where I would probably differ with it. To say that the Bible is no different than any other books means that really God was not actively involved in its authorship, even though he was actively involved in the way that it reveals himself to his people from every day thereafter. Here's another one. Inspiration takes place in the composition. So here's somebody who actually believes it does take place when it's composed. But it results from seeing what God has done, working through the religious traditions of the community at the time where the author is writing, and then applying those traditions to what's going on in the specific circumstance. So God is somehow allowing this wrestling to take place between seeing what God is doing, the context and the traditions of that community and how they understand it, and then trying to apply what they've understood to the situation. And that somehow is how God interacts with the composition of the text. Six different views. And I'm going to add one more that maybe next week I'll try to defend. As I go up against Jeremy, who knows infinitely more about this than I do, and I will fairly say that this is a, dare I say this word, evangelical perspective on Scripture. Last week, Jeremy called me an evangelical like it was a dirty word. <laughs> it's a badge I'll gladly wear. Not in every respect, but on this one, I think I'll take it. Here's what I've formulated. On a human level, the authors composed the Scriptures. And they did so by collecting information from witnesses, they did so by relying on other sources, which tends to trip people up, like, hey, if they relied on other sources, I could be inspired. They wrote it, in other words, just like anybody else would write anything else. They collected the information, they looked at sources, they did writing, they even did editing. They composed letters, they committed to writing the prophetic messages they had, they told stories, they had narratives, they told from their own experience, from their own witness. They did all of those things to compose things the way we would but on an even more important level, what I've called on a divine level, at the same time that all of this was going on, God the Holy Spirit was active in the entire process. So that the final result can be called the Word of God. That's what I think I want to defend next week. We've seen parallels of this in our other discussions. 
where you could plot out a lot of things, but God's sovereignty is operating in such a way that the end result is exactly what he wanted anyway. I believe that we could look at the writing of Scripture in this way. That even through the author's biases, even through their understandings of things, or whatever it was that they used to write a book, that God was working behind the scenes. That God was orchestrating, or what we would say that God, the Holy Spirit, was superintending the work of the authors to produce the result that he wanted. B.B. Warfield wrote The Inspiration Authority of the Bible. It was a pretty big deal when he wrote it. He says this, If God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepared a Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who spontaneously would write just such letters. Some of you asked questions specifically, in fact, you saw them earlier, about where is God's sovereignty and human fallibility? Where is God's sovereignty and human agency? Where does that stop? Because if you take sovereignty to its fullest extent, you could say, well, isn't that back to the dictation idea that he just somehow dictated? This view has two actors working simultaneously on a human level and on a sovereign level. But we've seen that so many other places in Scripture, I don't think it would be too much of a leap to at least consider it next week. Yeah? I have a question with that quote at the end. How would, I guess how would that be confined to just the timeline of the Bible and why? Like, could you use that to argue for like later writings that came? It's a very good question, and one that Jeremy's jumped in a few times to try to get us to answer, and I haven't, I haven't touched it yet, which is what makes the determination that once you have a list of what's official in the books, like it's now stopped, right? And why can't we continue to write scripture where this same formula would continue to go? Because I would put like mere Christianity in there, you know? You would put mere Christianity in there? Yeah, because I love my C.S. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us think C.S. Lewis was an apostle. <laughs> I mean, you know, like... We quote him all the time in churches, so he must be, right? I mean, yeah, I think that's right. Not that he should be an apostle, but I mean, I think, I think that's right that that question is one we have to answer. We have to get to how that was closed. And frankly, it becomes a theological position. It becomes a doctrine where we say, once the apostles stopped writing, that was the close of the New Testament canon. That was the decision that was made. Like, that's the view that's been taken by the church for a long time. So much so that the later church fathers who were writing very persuasive letters that are arguing against heresies, that are arguing for certain doctrines to be adopted in the church, and you would think, well, that's no different than what Paul was doing when he was writing to the Galatians or when he's trying to correct the Corinthians. Like, why is that not Scripture? You have the bishop of so-and-so and the bishop of this, like, doing these things, and the answer is because there was a belief that ended with the apostles who had witnessed and seen Christ. Let's leave it there and close up. God, the Holy Spirit, we come before you tonight in thankfulness for the fact that you have preserved these scriptures for us. Lord, we confess to you openly that even though we have the scriptures, we so rarely turn to them to study and to hear from you. Lord, we confess that as a church, we've become lazy. 
We've allowed people just to preach from the scriptures and to use them when we need them. Instead of, Lord, looking at them as something that's alive. And Lord, I thank you for this group that we're able to spend time wrestling with what inspiration means. Lord, may you bless our preparation this week. May you bless Jeremy. And help us next week to come together and discuss and through that process as so many times even the early apostles did, Lord, in conversation, in wrestling, in discussion, to wrestle with your word. And Lord, we know, Holy Spirit, that you can illuminate all things for us. Illuminate this subject. In the end, may we not walk out with knowledge, but with love for the scriptures and for the God who inspired them. Pray this in your name. Amen.